let me just read a, a couple of texts and then I'll pray briefly and then we'll dive into tonight's message from Genesis 1, very familiar, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then into Genesis 2 and down to verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And then down to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And now we'll just look at the New Testament and to the book of Ephesians. Just turn there briefly. Book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And here is Paul quoting from Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall, in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, gracious Father, I pray now that you would be blessed and honored in our hearts and even through the preaching and speaking of your word. Uh, Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Let your spirit have his full old ministry amongst us. Warm our hearts to Christ. Warm our hearts to your word. Illuminate our minds and give us clarity on these very important issues. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of this message is uh, Building Gender Distinctive Resilient Homes. Building Gender Distinctive Resilient Homes. There is a deep homesickness in our homeless generation today. Uh, The ache, if you like, of not belonging, of not having security, of not having a a sense of place, uh, an identity, and a history. To a great degree, this is because the idea of home and family has been eroded and redefined. And so what we see is a dislocation, a dislocation in society. And this has affected the church. What begins in the home then bleeds into church life and even affects pastoral leadership. For how a man manages his own household dictates whether he is qualified to lead in the household of God. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 5. Fatherhood in the home and pastoral care in the church are parallel activities as it were. So when Paul is thinking of church leadership in 1 Timothy, he thinks of fatherhood in the home. So central to the issue of homelessness is fatherlessness. And we are a fatherless generation. Therefore, we have fragile homes. You know, we often point out that the culture hates the home. It hates marriage. Avoid marriage, the culture says. Prepare for college, get a job, have a good time. Then when you're done having having fun, then get married, because marriage isn't that fun. 
We bought into this idea in the church, for sure. Maybe some of you are even a little bit stuck in that mindset. I don't know. Education and work are more important than marriage. Singleness is an honorable estate, but ungodly, selfish singleness is a blight on the church. Plus, now we're redefining marriage and opening up the idea of family as two men together who then adopt children, or a trans man, really a woman, who has a baby with her married partner. It all gets very confusing. We often also point out that the culture hates children. They are a burden and an inconvenience, not a blessing from the Lord, but a product of biological urges that can be eradicated through abortion if necessary. But what we don't always highlight is that the culture hates fatherhood. Fathers have been removed from their rightful place at the center of family life with devastating effects. Fathers who used to be figures of respect are now figures of mockery, who have homes, therefore, without order, without guidance, and without love. Consequently, we have homes that are not resilient, and we need resilient homes as much as ever for the battle ahead. So the government is against the Christian home, the education system is against the Christian home, the media and virtually all modern literature are against the Christian home, but behind the government is the devil, friends. It is interesting, isn't it, that after Paul writes this household code in Ephesians 5 and the beginning of Ephesians 6, he tells us then to be strong in the Lord and put on the armor of God for what reason? To be able to stand against the schemes of the devil because the devil hates the Christian home. He hates manhood and womanhood. He hates marriage. He has done so from the beginning when he disrupted the first perfect home in Eden. He was described then as crafty in Genesis 3. In Ephesians 6, he is a schemer. The enemy of the Christian home is ultimately not your prime minister or your president. The real tyrant is Satan. He may be using rulers, but here is where the battle is at. It's a spiritual battle. But the good news is this. God is for the Christian home. And if God is for us, who can be against us, as long as we do things God's way, because unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. He is the architect and the answer to the homesickness of our homeless, fatherless generation. So if we will build gender-distinctive, resilient homes that will stand against the devil's schemes today, we must build God's way And then we will be resilient in any day, not just our day. And we will build future homes for future days. Before we move on and into the main portion of structure of the message, I just want us to to finally situate ourselves in the gospel here. To, if you like, as Sinclair Ferguson says so very well, to get our gospel grammar right. The first three chapters of Ephesians basically say, done. That's the gospel, the indicative. God has done it in Christ. We were children of wrath, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
Ephesians 2. There's nothing to do but believe this truth, friends. Free offer of the gospel. But then we get to Ephesians 4 through 6, and Paul tells us the imperatives. Therefore, he says, walk like this. In light of chapters 1 to 3, walk like chapters 4 to 6. Because of what he has done and who you now are, be like this. And that's where we find the structure of the Christian home in chapters 5 and 6. So the same God who forgives our sins in salvation offers us this mercy in our sanctification. So we need to take heart and we need to root ourselves in the gospel. It is the power that we need in order to build. And we're talking about building gender distinctive, resilient homes. So I want to offer us four theological pillars for building these gender distinctive, uh, resilient homes, and then four theological applications. So four theological pillars and then four theological applications. So here we go. Four key theological pillars. Number one, the eternal pleasure of the Father in the Son. Pillar number one. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 and verse 3 that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say in that wonderful passage that he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world and blessed us in the beloved. This means that God the Father and God the Son have existed before time began in a familial relationship, Father to Son. And Paul tells us further in Ephesians 3 verse 15 that every family on earth is named after God the Father. Therefore, he is the source of the family. That is, we get our idea of fatherhood and then sonship and the Christian family and the home from God, not the other way around. And notice also that the son is the beloved son. He is beloved of the father. In other words, the son is the supreme object of the father's love so that All God's blessings come to us in Christ. As we are in Christ, we then become that focus too. He's literally referred to in Colossians as the son of his love. At his baptism, we see the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove, and then we hear the Father's voice, and you know the words, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, in Matthew 3. This love of the Father for the Son is such that the bounty which Christians receive by being in Christ through faith and having his atoning work applied to us, this bounty exists in being caught up then in the familial love and pleasure that exists between the Father and the Son. It's a little bit weighty. Maybe you're a bit tired after your dinner. But it's great stuff. And we need to be taken up there. We need to have our minds up there on the big things. Furthermore, in John 14, we hear that Jesus goes to prepare a place for us in his Father's house, that is heaven, and and he will return one day to take us to be home with him there. So everybody's sense of homesickness or homelessness and fatherlessness is firstly met by coming home to the Father through the Son and then being swept up into the sphere of the Father's love for the Son. 
even as Jesus promises in John 14, that the Father will love us and that he and the Son will come to us and make their home with us. You see the language, Father, Son, family, home. So this is the first theological pillar we need to have in place in order to build gender-distinctive, resilient homes. It's that all families find their source in the Father and his eternal love for and pleasure in the Son. And all believers, the household of God, are then caught up in this such that we experience this love and pleasure as the Father and Son make their home with us. And we even look forward to dwelling face to face with them, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the gender-distinctive Christian home is built on that pillar, and consequently, this resilient Christian home should be a place that reflects the Father's love for and pleasure in his Son. That's the first theological pillar. The second theological pillar is this, the historical structure of the first human family. The historical structure of the first human family. The first pillar is set in eternity past. The second theological pillar is set in time and history, from before the world began to when the world began, when God birthed the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what does it mean to think of God as the father of creation? Well, it it means many things, but it means, as James says, that he is the father of the heavenly lights. He is the source of the old goodness and the source of a good creation. And the father in creation, after speaking a universe into existence, says, now as, as the crown of creation, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so we read the words. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created him. He created him. Male and female, he created them. It's as if he says, there's something missing in this home. And so the climax of Genesis 1 is man made male and female, made in the image of God, created beings but with an image and likeness of God. And in the special creation of the man, we see the head of the human race appear. Adam, the man, is created. Chapter 2, we read of that special creation. He needs to work and, and, and keep the garden and rule creation. And with this headship, Adam is given all the physical and emotional and spiritual resources in his surroundings and in the natural life around him. But God says, you're going to need a helper, and she's going to help you extend your rule as as she's equal to you, yet complements you in all ways. And so what you see here in this structure of the first human family is that there is an order and there is a harmony And so God generously fashions this woman from the man's rib. I often speak to guys and when I'm doing biblical manhood talks and and we look at this passion, I say, guys, you know, I say, the woman, she is fashioned from the man's rib. We were made from dirt of the ground. She's this glorious being. She's fashioned from the man's rib, and he brings her into existence, his beautiful companion, that he's like him, but different from him. His equal, yet his complement. Him firstborn, her secondborn. Him the head, her the helper. 
her from him, for him. And so we see a gender distinctive order appearing for the sake of harmony in this home. Order and harmony. And yet all of this is for productivity. And so her first helping task will be to bear children with him in this one flesh union of marriage. This is the creation mission. A lot of people look and they see that, uh, you know, that God says it's not good for the man to be alone, and they think this is because Adam is lonely, but I don't think that that is the flow of the text. He didn't really know loneliness, right? He was perfectly in good relation with his father. He brought her to him for a functional reason. She is a helper fit for him. The creation commission, be fruitful and multiply. That first task was to help him in that task by having children with him. And this in the mind of Moses and in the mind of the first readers would have been, it would have been a very practical, functional thing. We tend to read our uh, understanding of marriage and offer companionship and the emotional thing, and I'm not saying that that isn't some of the uh, purposes of marriage, but here, this is a very primary purpose. Productivity, fruitfulness, to spread image bearers beyond the boundaries of this home in Eden until the whole world is filled with the knowledge of God through these image bearers. God is the father of Adam, the father of Eve, and he brings her to the man at that very first wedding in history. And so you see how God builds the the family, that first home, as it were. So the gender-distinctive, resilient home is built on this second theological pillar, and therefore homes should be places of order and harmony and productivity with gender-distinctive roles flowing out of creation order, just like the first home that God built, which links to the third theological pillar, the grace and generosity of the Father. The grace and generosity of the Father. Oh, the Father is a, a gracious giver, a gracious God in creation. He makes Adam and Eve, and he, he says, I provide everything for you, all that you need and more, my children. Now enjoy and explore and extend this garden. Enjoy the beautiful trees and, and fruit and birds of the air. And, and, and we need to, to notice the language. It's a, it's a good exercise maybe to, to look through Genesis 2 uh, tonight before you go to bed. And just notice the, the language here. You know, describe every tree as pleasant to the sight and good for food. And you hear Adam's words of joy, don't you, in this poetry when he sees his beautiful wife, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. See, the first home is a joyful place. Nothing is ugly in it. It is aesthetically and experientially beautiful, engaging Adam's senses from trees to his wife. And the father says, enjoy it, because God is generous, you see. He is lavishly so. He's not all about spoiling your fun. He's not all about saying no. In fact, look at all the yeses he gives to his first children. Just one no. Just not that tree. Not that tree there. So the father shows his grace and generosity in creation, but he also shows it in redemption. And we just need to cast our minds back to Ephesians 
Again, in Ephesians 1 and verse 6, in Ephesians 1, you have the wonderful presentation of the gospel and how the Father blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing on the basis of his electing love, that he adopts us as sons. And then you have this line in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the gospel exists so that we would praise the glory of his grace. That's why he saves us. To showcase his grace and and for us to worship him because of it. The Father is a gracious giver, friends. Do a study of the gospel of John. See how the word is full of grace and truth and makes the character of the Father known. How the Father gives his Son to us. John 3.16. The Father gives us to his Son. John 10.29. The Father gives us a place in his house. John 14.1 and 2. The Father gives us the Spirit. John 14.6. The Father gives us what we ask in Jesus' name. John 16.23. God is a gracious giver and he displays that in creation and redemption. And friends, I would say that not seeing the Father as a gracious, generous giver was the problem for both the sons in the parable of the prodigal son. The one who runs away and takes his staff and squanders it in licentious living. He didn't see his father as a gracious giver. He saw him as a hard, harsh taskmaster. Even when he comes back in, in this repentance, he's, he says, maybe you're like one of your servants, one of your slaves. And the father's like, no, you're a son, my son. There's going to be a robe and a ring and a feast. And then what about the other one, the one who stayed? And he says to the father, well, you never made a feast for me. And the father says, all that I have is yours. The problem with both at heart is they did not see the father as a lavishly gracious giver. And that is at the root of a lot of our sin. This is a vital theological pillar for gender-distinctive, resilient homes. So what is the tone of your home? Aesthetically beautiful with the means that God gives you? A place of many S's which outweigh the no's? A place that reflects the grace and generosity of our Father in heaven in our relationships within the home such that the Father's grace pervades the home, the Father's grace through the Son. So that's the third theological pillar, the grace and generosity of the Father. And that leads to the fourth theological pillar is a masculine defined home, a masculine defined home. If the Father's grace pervades the home, then masculinity should define the home. Fourth theological pillar. God is spirit, but he is revealed to us in masculine terms. He is Father. We are taught to pray to our Father in heaven. The second person of the Trinity is revealed to us as the Son of the Father, and he comes to us incarnate as a man, Christ Jesus, not as a woman. He is the one mediator between God and man. Adam is the head of creation. Jesus is the second Adam and the head of the new creation, the church. The human race is named man, not woman. Is named man, Adam in Hebrew, not woman, indicating a primacy of masculinity in defining the marriage relationship. That's why traditionally, I don't know every culture, but traditionally in uh, the West, a woman will take her husband's last name. 
Unfortunately, some women who refuse to take their husband's last name are still stuck with their father's last name. <laughs> Bit of light humor for, for the evening there. It's true though, isn't it? I'm not taking his name, but you're still stuck with your father's. Okay, just stay with me here because I'll say quite a lot of things here. So, hear this. Men are not the source of masculinity, but are God's chosen sex to carry the masculine role of husband and father, reflecting God as father and Christ as husband. What of women, you say? Are they less important? No. They too are called to point to God as father and Christ as husband. How? by the way that they help to affirm their father's role and the, the way they help to affirm their husband's role, even if he's a father as, as well, to, to their children. And by not trying to be masculine when they are feminine. They are saying, look, this is what God is like. And men in their roles are saying, look, this is what God is like. You see, it's all about God. It's all about the father and the son. It's not ultimately about us, male or female. What if they're not married or never married, men or women, you know, singles? Will unmarried men and unmarried women show a single-minded allegiance to the bridegroom in the corporately feminine role of the church's bride? And unmarried men and unmarried women can all affirm fathers and husbands where appropriate. And all men can be spiritual fathers in the church with points to the fatherhood of God. And spiritual mothers are called to train younger women to be submissive to their own husbands, thus showing Christ to be a husband worthy to be followed. In the way the church respects and submits to their elders, the whole church is pointing to the son, who is the chief elder, the chief shepherd and the bridegroom of the church, whom the elders are called to imitate. And as the congregation, men and women, submit to their elders, they point to the Father in heaven, because godly fatherhood in the home is one of the qualifications for an elder in the church who are to be like fathers to the church. And you see, all of it is designed, therefore, to point to God and not to us. And so the home then is masculine divine, and within this both men and women equally, though differently in some senses, function so that it is a place which points like an arrow to the father and the son. Four theological pillars for gender distinctive resilient homes. Number one, home reflecting the eternal love and pleasure of God the Father in God the Son. Number two, home incorporating the historical structure of the first human family, order, harmony, productivity. Number three, the home displaying the grace and generosity of the father. Number four, the home being masculine defined. On top of these four pillars now, because we're building tonight, we can apply four key theological applications. Number one, husband-led marriages and father-led parenting. In order to build gender-distinctive, resilient homes, we need to recover Husband-led marriages and father-led parenting. We have a problem with headship in the church because we gave up on headship in the home years ago. Recover headship in the family and you will see the next generation embrace it. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. So Paul instructs in Ephesians 5, and 
it was great to hear Grant's message this afternoon because he's, he's done all the spade work. There was a great message just laid out for us in Ephesians 5, great expositional, exegetical work. But the husband's position is head. He doesn't grow into it, though he will hopefully get better at exercising it. He is positionally the head, and she, the wife, is to arrange herself under that headship. His headship is then the basis of her submission. His headship, appointed by Christ, the basis of her submission as unto Christ, so that her submission is not so much, and hear this, not so much something she does, like wives saying, I'm a submitter. No, it's the posture she adopts. That's why she can submit in everything. In all areas of life, she is under her husband's headship. It means nothing less than being obedient to him, where it's not sin, where she's not called to submit to abuse. That's not that, because Christ would never do that to his bride. But it does mean more than this. A wife is not always doing what her husband asks. Sometimes she's doing all sorts of things for which he hasn't specifically asked. Her task is to be his helper, but she always then does this in a position of submission to his headship. Therefore, she always acts in a manner appropriate to her position, functioning out of it as his helper. It's about position, order for harmony and fruitfulness or productivity. He is head. She respects his headship. She places herself under his headship. And note, she must do this, and she must actively do it. It's not a passive doormat thing. She gives that submission as she arranges herself, and she does it as to the Lord. She thus affirms a husband-led marriage. What about headship? Well, we see from 1 Corinthians 11, 3, 1 Corinthians 11, 3, we see three things. That headship comes from God, headship is not tied to sex, and headship does not mean inequality. It comes from God, it's not tied to sex, and it does not mean inequality. In the order, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man the head of the woman. So God, the Father, sends God the Son, and then Jesus, in his incarnation, submits to the Father's will in all he does. And so we see headship originates with God, and he's not tied to sex. But Philippians 2 tells us, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, yet obeyed his Father all the way to death on the cross. So the incarnate Jesus is equal with his Father, but chooses to submit to his Father. And so we see headship is from God, is not tied to sex, and does not mean inequality, because Jesus, equal with his Father, chooses to submit to his Father. Yet in the husband-wife relationship, he is her head, and it is this way why? Why is it this way? Because it reflects the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. So when Paul says in Ephesians 5.31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, this mystery is profound and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. He is saying that marriage in creation has always been a picture of God's love in redemption. And we can take it further to the marriage supper of the Lamb and say it points all the way to consummation, from creation to redemption to consummation. But it's not marriage in general he's talking about here. 
in Ephesians 5, but it's married, marriage with a Christ-like headship of the husband and a church-like submission of the wife. And just as Christ and the church can't swap roles, so too the husband and wife don't swap roles. And these are the lines, friends, that bring definition to the picture that's on display. But we are a generation that's given up on headship in the home. In many cases, we might pay lip service at best. And I deal with lots of marriages. I've spoken to lots of, of couples, and, and lots of them would say, oh, yes, no, we agree that you know a, a man should take a lead and a, a woman should, should follow that in, in the home. But they're functionally egalitarian. Functionally egalitarian. And many churches that way too. So we must return to husband-led marriages Why? For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, we need to do this. We must also return to father-led parenting. Husband-led marriages, father-led parenting. Ephesians 6, verse 1, expresses that both parents are in authority over the children. But verse 3 tells us that fathers must take a lead. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So parenting must be father-led. And if they are heads, if a, if a man is head over his wife, of course, he's going to be head over the whole home. Makes sense, right? Nancy Gibbs wrote in Time magazine a few years ago, made, made an interesting observation, said, from the Reformation until the 1830s, most parenting manuals were written for fathers. How about that one? Before this time, a society assumed that mothers were assistant to the fathers. Now it is assumed that fathers are assistant to mothers. William Farley has written a lot of, Bill Farley's written a lot of good books on parenting and, and the home. Note some of the reasons for this now, this, this assuming that, that fathers are assistant mothers. One is the rise of feminism, he says because it rejects parental sex role specialization and makes it interchangeable. Now everything dad can do, mum can do better. Another reason is a general suspicion of authority structures nowadays. Another, and I may offend a few of you here, but hear me out before you get offended, another is the homeschool movement. Okay, maybe some of you homeschool. We're about half and half in our church. I think it's great. But although we're for homeschooling in many senses, mums that participate are with the children all day long. And in this sense, they become the teacher, the disciplinarian, the omnicompetent parent on the scene all the time. And then the role of father can often slide to the margin. And the greatest temptation here is that many contemporary fathers then experience passivity because she is with them all day. She's doing all that. And then he comes home and it's easy just to let it go. And of course, passivity is Adam's great sin. Friends, abuse gets the headlines, and rightly so, but passivity is the silent killer of manhood. We know it's that way because it was that way at the fall. And the world is trying to corral men into passivity. But whatever the school situation, most mothers probably be with the children more than the father in the day. The key is that both know who bears the ultimate responsibility before God. On the last day, God will hold dad accountable first for the parenting process. 
He will hold mum responsible. And he will hold mum responsible for how she helped him. Now, there are many excellent and well-intended books written by Christian mothers for Christian mothers, but where's the chapter in those books entitled, How I Worked With My Husband? Lots of women out there writing for other women, and some of the stuff is very good. But I feel it lacks that nuance and that key nuance. Since he is the lead parent, the discussion here is unquestionable. In the Bible, this is so with the father and the wife assisting him. Remember the fatherhood of God, the overarching theme for the biblical family, to be reflected in the various spheres. Qualified male elders like fathers to the congregation, the household of God. Husbands in the home provide that fatherly, loving authority, all patterned on the Father in heaven. Patricentrism is what Andreas Kostenberger, the scholar, calls it, where the father in the ancient world was center of the nuclear home, using his loving authority for the benefit of his wife and children and neighbors and servants and so on. The wife, his helper in that task, by his side, under his authority, but still in authority over the children. And so we see there is order for the sake of harmony, for the sake of productivity in the home. If we are going to build on the four theological pillars for gender uh, distinctive, resilient homes, we're going to return to husband-led marriages and father-led parenting. And then that leads us to the the second theological application, if we return to husbands and fathers leading, we must also regain confidence in life-giving authority. Confidence in life-giving authority. That's the second application. Many husbands and fathers have abdicated their responsibility to exercise their God-given headship in their homes because of sin, the sin of laziness, the sin of neglect, maybe. Some maybe have never been taught about it, never been shown how. But you know what? Nowadays, many are afraid to exercise it because the culture is telling them all men are potential abusers. The culture is telling men masculinity is toxic. I say masculinity is not toxic. Sin is toxic. Masculinity is actually the antidote to much of the toxicity in the world today because true masculinity protects women and children against abuse. The world says that that women are just inherently victims of male oppression. And behind it all, friends, is an unspoken idea, and it's not said very often from the pulpit, an unspoken idea that women are even more moral than men. We're all right with the men getting called out in the congregation, but, but if a woman is pressed, whoa, that's a little bit touchy. Even though we recognize that some men and women do abuse, and some men and women are toxic, men are often guilty till proven innocent. And you see the problem here. Men are shrinking back in fear. Who wants to be accused of being an abuser when you try and take initiative or exercise authority or assume the role? Or if you do try, you can only do it in the way the culture prescribed, which is basically emasculate men and reduce them to tame puppy dogs who follow women around on a leash. And so I say that we must gain confidence, regain confidence in right authority to use it and submit to it. And so headship then is the assumption of loving responsibility which sacrificially protects and provides 
in order to give life, life-giving authority. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So headship contains authority, which flows through the loving sacrifice of responsibility. Headship contains authority, which flows through the loving sacrifice of responsibility. So headship's not about being the boss. It's about being the sacrificer. Now, a man can never be the sacrifice in the same way as Christ was. He alone atones for sin. Christ was our substitute in the sense of being our sin bearer, but also in the sense of being our representative. He represents us so that we die with Christ, are buried with Christ, are raised with Christ to new life. His representative role actually makes it a personal sacrifice rather than an abstract sacrifice. In Adam, our old head, all are dead. In Christ, our new head, all who believe live. A husband is head, then in a representative sense, over his wife. It's not that he is guilty for her sin, but he is overall responsible for her and the marriage. Key to get. It it didn't matter that Eve sinned most obviously, front and center. God calls Adam to account first. He says, Adam, where are you? He says, cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. Adam is her representative head. God deals with Eve, but God makes Adam first responsible. I'll give you a quick example. It, I, I used this this morning in my, in my workshop. Um, if my wife and I have had an argument in the home, and let's say Amanda was 95% wrong, which is very rare, but let's say she is 95% wrong on this occasion. And she's over one side of the house sulking. I'm over the other side of the house. I believe on the basis uh, of Scripture that if Jesus was to knock at the door and Amanda was to answer, he'd say, hello, Amanda, I want to speak to Gavin. And he'll call me to account and he'll say, Gavin, what's going on in your home? And what have you done to bring you and your wife back to the foot of the cross? When he's dealt with me, he will deal with her. If I'm dealing with marriage counseling in my church, uh, 98% of the time, I'm always going to sit down, and it doesn't matter if the woman's running out the door of the marriage, I want to address the man first. I want him to give me what's going on, because somewhere along the line, that balance has gone wrong. Christ's blood is the reason for a man's authority, and he must show his headship by loving his wife as Christ loved his bride, the church, and giving himself up for her. So this is what you do, men in here. You take responsibility, you protect her, you provide for her. Encourage, guide, correct even at times by washing her with the word. This is how your authority is channeled. It's to give life. And so you see the words in Ephesians 5 of nourishing and cherishing, of nourishing, that feeding and building up, of cherishing, that keeping warm. And so she grows and you grow. And wife, you encourage this and receive this and you grow and he grows. And you see the reciprocity of it all as you complement one another. And fathers, the same word for nourish is used to bring up your children. So your headship is for their nourishment, to give them life. Which means that fatherhood extends beyond begetting children. You must bring them up and nourish them through instruction and discipline. That is what masculinity is. It's taking responsibility and sacrificing to provide for and protect life. And that is how the father and son show masculinity, which means that a man who abdicates his responsibility as head of the home is actually being effeminate. And if your wife 
doesn't respond to your headship, then I urge you, sit down with her prayerfully, patiently, explain from the Bible God's purposes, even like this, from the home, for the home, and how she is to help you in this. And if you need help from other godly couples or people around, then I encourage that. And even if you need help from your elders. And finally, in this section, if you're called to be ahead, then show an example of what it is to submit to right authority. If you're a man who doesn't submit to his father's headship or didn't submit to his father's headship well or to a boss in the workplace or to your elders or to government, you probably have a problem with authority and you actually won't exercise authority well. Good heads submit themselves to appropriate headship well. Second theological application for gender gender distinctive resilient homes brings us to the third application, and I must move on quickly. The third application is the imitation game. Practice the imitation game. With the four pillars in place, the first two applications applied, now comes a place where imitation can take place. Because we learn not only by instruction, but imitation. Paul's way of life was worth imitating. So he says to the people, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The writers of Hebrews tell us, imitate your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider their way of life. Imitate them. And so we mustn't be afraid of that. Sometimes we think it's really being quite modest. Oh, we wouldn't want anyone to imitate us. Oh, don't imitate me. But Paul said, no, imitate me. I want men to imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want to imprint on men if it's Christ-like. And by virtue of you being a father, or affirming father-led parenting. You, you are very faintly imitating God the Father for your children. By being a husband and wife who imitate Christ in the church, you are both speaking the gospel of Christ to your children. And then the children can imitate you in gender-specific ways as they say, ah, oh, that's how a man should look, how daddy treats mummy, and oh, that's how a woman is, how mummy speaks to daddy. So as they watch mum and dad, They get to see what binary sex is in the image of God is about. And you get boys and girls who know how to assume masculinity and femininity, which points to God as father and Jesus as bridegroom and the son. Children then learn what it means to be a biblical man or a biblical woman and how that is to be channeled then towards husbanding and wifing, fathering and mothering. Again, I said this morning, how many teenage boys do you ask nowadays 15 year old boy and say what do you want to be when you're older and that boy turns around and says want to go get me a wife and have some children they might say I want to be a sports star a doctor a lawyer and there's nothing wrong with that it's not on their radar though to 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 be a, a husband and a father same with girls how many would say you know oh, I'd love to have a husband I'd love to have children bring up the next generation Not on their radar, but it was on God's radar from creation, building that first home. Yeah, he made the man, he gave him a job, he gave him a wife, says, have some children, extend the borders of Eden. Imitation game. And see how important then maleness and femaleness is. It is tied to massive theological, gospel-related realities. It is where our children then find their identity and purpose as men and women. Women. Third application then. Resilient homes, gender-distinctive resilient homes are places that play the imitation game, which leads to the fourth and final 
application is families as little churches, quote unquote, little churches. When you have these gender resilient homes that are husband and father led, exercising authority for the good of their family, becoming spheres of imitation, then that fourth application can take place. These homes become little churches. I put that in quotes because the family is not the church. The church is the bigger family, the household of God, but it doesn't negate the nuclear home. And resilient homes, these gender-distinctive homes, will be places where a husband disciples his wife, and mothers and fathers evangelize and disciple their children, and fathers take a lead in instruction and discipline. And by their example, in portraying Christ and the church, the marriage shows people who come into the home for hospitality that Christ is a bridegroom worth being wed to. And that in this human earthly father, one can see a faint reflection of the loving authority of the heavenly father who welcomes the outcast and his father to the fatherless. And so your home then, as this little church, becomes a gospel welcome even as the Father as he welcomes you in, the hospitality of the gospel. Thomas Manton once said, a family is the seminary of the church. By family discipline, officers are trained up for the church. So today's homes contain tomorrow's pastors. Today's homes contain tomorrow's church and tomorrow's workforce. Today's homes contain tomorrow's missionaries. What a chance for influence we have for kingdom work through the Christian home. One of the best ways to resist the tyranny of the devil and to advance the kingdom is to build gender-distinctive, resilient homes according to God's design. The increase and influence of the Christian home is foundational to the spread of the gospel and reformation of wider society. And here, friends, as I close, we have all greatly failed, We have abdicated or resisted and given up ground, even in the face of great pressure from outside. So here is even a call to repent, to sit down and, and have a conversation about it, to ring the changes, but to take heart because the Father has forgiven our sins through the Son and brought us into his family and equipped us by the Spirit to build these kind of homes. And he will equip you to do what he commands. So you must believe Ephesians 1 to 3, and then you must be Ephesians 4 to 6. It's not a case of being something you're not. It's being something you already are, living it out. And know this, when you do repent from the heart, and when you do return, like the father in the prodigal, God is eagerly looking down the road for you and comes running to meet you with a ring and a robe and a feast of rejoicing. So let's build these gender-distinctive, resilient homes because the idea of family comes from the fatherhood of God himself, the father who sent the son to make us sons and heirs, children of the living God, male and female in his image, in the family of the church, these little holy families where a husband steps up where Adam didn't, and takes a lead as Christ did, and where a husband and wife portray a gospel picture for gospel propagation to the next generation of potential Christians as they parent their children with the fatherhood of God reflected in the Father's loving care of the home. This is one of the greatest needs for a homesick, homeless generation. Let's pray. And so, Father in heaven, I pray that you would implant the word deep down in us tonight, 
I, pl- I pray that we would grow even in our understanding and knowledge of this word and the application of it, even as we've heard these four theological pillars and the four applications. And I pray that homes would be changed and that your glory would be seen. In Jesus' name, amen.